Hey everyone, this is Brie popping in for a quick message before this episode on The Office with Maggie Olson. I want to first start out with a great deal of gratitude. Uh, the positive response to this show in terms of listener numbers, engagement, feedback, and just your kind compliments and enthusiasm has been extremely heartwarming. Um, also for the very enthusiastic response I've gotten from people who actually just want to be on the show. Uh, I never imagined that starting a podcast would feel so stress-free, but this really has turned into a great, fun, positive experience uh, because of all the kindness of everyone involved, so thank you. Um, if you're really feeling the love, you could drop a five-star review onto iTunes. If you're feeling anything less than five stars, I would ask that you keep it to yourself and just to be safe, delete your Apple account. Uh, more importantly, I want to thank everyone for their patience as I'm still learning the game in terms of audio. I knew when I started that there would be a learning curve as well as an equipment technology curve. I like to think I'm getting better, especially since I got some help uh, from friend of the show, Luke Leveillet. The hissing, the bad echoes, the sound of me putting my LaCroix can down on my desk. Um, it's all going to be less and less as I get used to the elements of recording a podcast. Uh, no one has been outright mean. In fact, everyone's been very encouraging, but I do wish to say that I hold myself to a higher standard than that. This is probably the last episode that you'll hear that is truly bad audio-wise. Both of us just had suboptimal mic situations. I had to record both of us through my computer and not through uh, our own mics, so that's just how it is. I encourage you to grit your teeth and get through it because the discussion is fantastic. Maggie was a real star. I too wonder uh, why Dunder Mifflin doesn't have a marketing department. And I promise we've got three episodes in the can after this one that do not have these bad audio issues. I've become much better prepared over the last month and I can't wait for you to hear the new episodes. It's only going uphill from here. Thanks so much. Take care and enjoy the episodes. What's his name? Crentest. Your dentist's name is Crentist. Huh. Welcome to Peak Show, where we want people to be afraid of how much they love us. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peak. So here with me today is writer, marketing professional, Instagram foodie extraordinaire, my internet friend, Maggie Olson. Maggie, welcome. Hi, Bree. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited. This is our first time, uh, air quotes, meeting after a few years of mutually following each other. So Maggie, tell everyone about yourself and, uh, you know, why you are so universally adored online. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, this is so funny how we've been like internet friends and our cats have been in a long distance relationship for <laughs> a very long time. And yeah, this is our first time like talking in person. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so my name is Maggie Olson. I'm originally from Minnesota. I'm based out of the United States now in Akron, Ohio. Um, my primary internet presence is my Instagram account where I just post pictures of all the food I make. So I think mm. that's like how people primarily know me. I'm not an influencer by any stretch of the imagination. I just kind of mm -hmm. do it for fun. But um, professionally, I am a freelance writer and editor. And I also work for the man in marketing for a company that does laboratory testing for like rubber components. So <laughs> in addition to my food Instagram, I'm also full of really interesting trivia about tires and automotive hoses. And yeah. yeah. As someone who has been a B2B reporter for almost a decade, uh, and like I've reported on the entertainment industry, I've reported on marketing and media, and now I report on agriculture and manure. 
This is going to sound weird, but I don't think people even our age realize how many different companies there are out there because we don't think of B2B jobs as real jobs. And so something like testing rubber and like testing road materials is like, yeah, that's that's someone's job. That's what someone does. And I think it's so fun to have that very specific knowledge of very specific things. <laughs> Absolutely. There's the the sheer volume of information and systems that are invisible to you as a consumer mm -hmm. is astonishing when you get on the other side. Like now that I know just how much engineering and chemistry goes into creating like a passenger car tire, <laughs> I will never again complain about how expensive they are because they are so sophisticated. Yeah. And so, but it's amazing. And I'll, I'll tell people like about what I do and the type of testing we do in our laboratories. And they will say to me, well, you know, I didn't know that someone was testing the adhesives used on an IV bag to make sure it wasn't going to leach into the medication into the patient. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. We test that kind of stuff all the time. So um, it's it's great that we're talking. It's great that we're talking about um, about kind of B two B and that hidden uh, that hidden world of you know jobs that people don't think exist and jobs that people just don't think about on a daily basis. Because today we are talking about. The Office, a little indie show that I really hope makes it. I've, I've made that joke so many times. Um, so, um, but before we get into The Office and we discuss when this show peaked, I want to know, Maggie, when do you think you peaked? When did I peak? So I, I think I, I'll be tacky and say like, you know, I think my peak is still coming. I don't think I've peaked yet. I think I'm, it's still coming. But my previous life, <laughs> I think I peaked in 2016. Because mm -hmm. that time my boyfriend and I started like became official that year and he is like obviously a huge and wonderful part of my life so that was like a great time for me um before you and I became internet friends I don't know if you knew this but I used to run ultra marathons you've mentioned crazy. running but I had no idea you did yeah. ultra marathons that's crazy oh, yeah. I did like 50k 50 milers like that was like my whole personality for a few years <laughs> and that year I was like non-stop personal records like every oh. single race was a PR and then on top of that, I was working for the National Park at that time, for the National Park wow. here in Ohio. And the National Park Service had its centennial that year. So I was like involved in all these like major marketing campaigns, like around like the National Park Service centennial and got to all these cool projects. So it was just like a lot of crazy, like cool things kind of happened at once. So that was like a peak for me. It was like 2016. So 2016 was a peak for you. And it's weird. I don't think in, in the four episodes I've recorded so far, I don't think I've ever been challenged to determine when I peaked. But I can safely say that while you were peaking, that might have been the bottoming bottoming out of my post-university life. Um, <laughs> you know, it was the thing I got, I got transferred at work to a new, uh, a new magazine, which I ended up loving eventually, but it was, it was really difficult. My cat was sick. Um, my, my car died and I, I sold it for $75 of scrap. Like it was, uh, 2016 was a bad time for, for old Brie, but then the next year, like I got married. So I feel like that was, you know maybe a bit of a, a bit of a higher point for me, yeah. you know, getting, getting married, best day of my life. Uh, so yeah, now this is great because uh, when the, off the office started airing in about 2004, you and I are pretty much the same age. So I'm curious as to like what your relationship was with the office. Like, did you watch it when it came on or did you kind of get to know it more through reruns? So I did not growing up, 
growing up, I did not watch a lot of live TV. I, you yeah. know, I never really saw all the shows that were big when you and I were kind of coming of age. It just like wasn't really part of our family culture. But yeah. I had a friend who was really into The Office, my friend Brad. Mm-hmm. And he and I, he introduced The Office to me when it was maybe one or two seasons in. Mm-hmm. And I remember, so I would have been in high school at this time. I remember I watched the first one or two seasons like on DVD that he lent me. So that was my first introduction to the show was watching it with him that way. And I loved it. It was so funny. I loved the humor. I loved the new style of shooting. Like the mockumentary was really new at that point. And so I started watching it actually like primetime. Like it was NBC, right? I would yeah. like, watch it on NBC whatever night it came out. I don't even remember anymore. But it was a Thursday night show, pretty much the entire run. It was a Thursday night show, which like, that's where you put your money shows. Yeah. 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 That was like prime time. So yeah. So I remember watching it with either by myself or sometimes with a friend and my most vivid office memory. And I got, I wrote this down. I don't even remember what season this was, but I remember watching um, the finale of season four. Or is that the one where at the end of, where they have Toby's goodbye party? Yes. I remember watching that one live in my friend's basement. There were four of us that were mm-hmm. like watching the show live, maybe five of us. And I remember where it was the scene where Phyllis is going upstairs to the office after the party and she catches Dwight and Angela together. And all of us squished together on my friend's couch in high school were like, oh, the scandal. Oh my goodness. We were just like so distraught by um, the scandal. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, we have to wait months before we know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now you just hit next episode, right? Like oh, there's yeah. no waiting for people who watch the show now. But I remember it was the first time I was so invested in a show like that mm-hmm. and had to wait to see what was going to happen. Like that is like such a vivid memory for me as we were so excited to like watch this together. So can I just say, yeah, you know, you? especially through quarantine uh, or like, I, although I've said online, I'm not a fan of people calling it a quarantine when I'm like, this isn't a quarantine. I can go outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, how much I've fallen back in love with uh, appointment TV viewing and uh, like, Oh, this show comes out on this day. Like, we don't have cable because we're not 50, but um, we, but um, we do have an antenna. And where, where our apartment is, we have a great view of the CN Tower. We get a great signal. And so like Tuesday nights, it's like, oh, it's time for Kim's Convenience. And we get really excited and we go and we wait for Kim's to, Convenience to come on. And then, you know, we watch This Is Us at nine o'clock. Um, I, I think also being a sports fan has has really influenced me as part of that. But um, uh, or like, and that's why I'm big fan of what disney plus does now with the way it drops its uh drops its episodes one week at a time because that feeling of anticipation and like the office didn't do like cliffhanger season endings a lot uh you know the most you could say after that was oh who are they going to replace michael with as the manager but like um yeah they they didn't really do that so for me though i too did not watch a lot of um a lot of live tv um i you know, I, I was a big Simpsons fan. I always made time for The Simpsons. And, but um, I danced so much in high school that in, like, when The Office was at its, uh, kind of at its peak of being the big weekly show, I was just always dancing from 4 to 10 p.m. Uh, or I was working at my dance studio, so I was just there all night. Um, and then when I started university, it was kind of like the show that everyone on my floor got together and watched that and How I Met Your Mother. 
Um, I'll say that I didn't make that big of an effort to join in, but I saw a couple episodes, but I couldn't have told you like what was going on in them. And it's like, I didn't know the characters, so I didn't bother getting to know the characters. And it was, I think, the year after The Office ended that it came onto Netflix Canada. And the guy I was dating at the time, he put on one episode. And it's it's an episode that's not very fondly remembered, um, but it's from season two, which as a whole is a very good season. It's Take Your Daughter to Work Day. And oh, I love that episode. I love so that funny. episode too, because all of a sudden, like all the other episodes I've seen, which I couldn't tell you which episodes I saw before, but um, it really got to the pathology of Michael uh, and his like loneliness and his need for kids and stuff. And um, I thought it was so sweet. I thought the ending was so heartwarming with them singing the song to the kids and stuff and Dwight saying, your parents love you very much. I'm like, oh, like that's actually a really sincere thing. I thought the show was a lot more cynical. So I did watch it chronologically after that, um, but it was all entirely after the show ended. And so to an extent, I think a little bit of that anticipation quality was removed because like I knew Jim and Pam were going to get together. I knew they were going to get married and have children. I knew that you know, the Angela, Dwight, Andy love triangle was a thing, but I still like it, it became, and I, I know no one's unique and there's no millennials unique, but it came, became just the show that is on when you're eating dinner and the show that is on when you're just hanging out, especially because in, in Canada, until Disney plus came along, we didn't have a way of mainlining the Simpsons. So, uh, which, you know, I, I like your spirit show, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Like I was born the year the Simpsons came out and I was raised on it. Like I, I wasn't a kid who wasn't allowed to watch the Simpsons. So, and I had, you know, older siblings. So I was just, I was pretty much raised by the Simpsons and, uh, my, my little nephew, who's almost five, he has, I think my, my sister has introduced him to the Halloween episodes first, because those are surprisingly a lot more kid friendly. But, you know, he was this summer dancing around singing, I'm smarter than the devil. So The Office, not as kid friendly. But uh, so why don't we uh, why don't we dive a little bit into the history? And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, feel free to just like hop in and digress. But um with me, I'm kind of a walking Wikipedia on shit. Um, actually, Maggie, I, I do have to ask you, um, have you listened to the Office Ladies podcast with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey? I have not. That being said, when I was in high school and at the peak of my own personal obsession with the Office, mm -hmm. I think the first podcast I ever listened to was an Office podcast. 2006, 2007. I can't even tell you what it was called. And I remember not really knowing what it was, but just wanting more office content and mm -hmm. so like i like to listen to an office podcast so i don't listen to that one now mm -hmm. um but yeah back in the day i was like really into this one office podcast it was my first podcast i think that i ever listened to yeah i i think um Office Ladies is a very sweet podcast. I think Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey just seem like really lovely people. It's it's still jarring. Like the first four or five episodes you hear, it's weird to hear Angela Kinsey sounding so sweet because she does play. Yeah. She plays a bitchy grump so well. Um, but um, it's just like they're just two moms looking back at their old times. Like they'll often cry because of how lovely a memory was and stuff and they really speak so highly of the crew and the cast and stuff which i think is just very classy of them and it's given me even more affection for the show because you realize like these people worked on a cast with frankly very little change in the cast like aside from steve carell no one really left um and you know the last season i guess kaling and novak left but like um, so it really was like a little family and stuff. And when I think about like 10 years, like, first of all, they made good money. Like it's, I was remarking how like a lot of people from the office have not gone to do much since then, but I'm just like, they'll be fine. 
they'll be yeah. fine. Um, yeah. So yeah, the the office was originally a two season long BBC comedy that aired from 2001 to 2003. And shortly after it did have a run in the US on BBC America. Um, my husband is English. He was born in uh, born in Wales, uh, raised in England, came or lived for a while in England, came over here as a toddler. And he will, he surprisingly has seen very few British comedies. But he does often speak highly of, you know, British TV and knowing when to end it. You know, knowing yeah, knowing yeah. when to call it a day. Uh, but in the, around 2004, it was first optioned for U.S. development. And Greg Daniels, who at the time was mainly working on King of the Hill, um, he had to be convinced to take it on. He did a watch through of the original BBC series. Um, I just recorded an episode on King of the Hill with my friend Mike Stevens. And we did remark that when Greg Daniels came onto the office, there was a bit of a brain drain on King of the Hill. And it declined somewhat, although King of the Hill still an amazing series start to finish, but it really changed when he left. But um, what he brought over from King of the Hill, and he was also a Simpsons writer as well, but he's so good at observational slice of, slice of life humor. Um, but then a lot of fans of the British original basically asked, like, why is this necessary? Why does this need to be remade? A lot of people questioned if it would work in a U.S. context, because British series are a lot more cynical than um, and a lot more kind of dreary than uh, American series. And the first season does have a lot more dreariness, I think. Um, it really does. Even oh, yeah. the lighting is more kind of yes. drab and depressing. And a lot of the humor in, in a lot of American sitcoms that are a little more prevalent, like, you know, Big Bang Theory or something, yeah. the humor is very spoon fed to you. <laughs> shows like The Office, there's a lot of it that's really obvious, but a lot of it, you, you'll you miss it if you blink. My favorite show of all time is Community. And one of my favorite things about that show is like how much of the humor develops the more you watch it and how much of it is so subtle and sneaky. And I think you're right that that is like, especially in the first season of The Office, it's very different than your classic American sitcom. It's kind of drab. It's kind of slow. There's a laugh track, obviously, which is very different. Yeah. Um, and that was yeah, still fairly revolutionary for the time. Yeah, Although, yeah. I mean, I did, my, my first episode is on Malcolm in the Middle, and we were discussing, like, Malcolm really hit different because it was really one of the first without one, and they did become more common, but, like, The Office combined that with mockumentary, and um, it, it was it was different for a lot of people, so... Greg Daniels was the original showrunner with Mike Schur, a.k.a. Mo Schrute, uh, being uh, kind of his secondary. Other writers in the room included Jen Salata and, of course, Mindy Kaling, B.J. Novak, and Paul Lieberstein. Um, Paul Lieberstein was also a King of the Hill guy. Um, early on, you know, the first season, the show had really mixed reviews. Um, it, it struggled to distinguish itself from the U U.K. counterpart, um, but it was renewed um, and came back the second season, uh, took off. Um, um, critically, The Office picked up steam in season two, and that continued into season three in terms of critical good graces. Season four was actually seen as something of a critical dip, um, although um, production did suffer that season due to the writer strike. Uh, and this is why I brought up The Office Ladies or, uh, podcast, because The Office is one of the few notable shows to survive the writer strike, and um, its actors, including Steve Carell, refused to cross the picket line. And to this day, uh, actors, including Fisher and Kinsey, are still very, very supportive of their writer comrades. So that's really nice to hear. Um, uh, which is also why, if you watch the fourth season and all of a sudden, it goes from Angela Kinsey is tiny Angela Kinsey to Angela Kinsey is very obviously very pregnant um, because they missed time shooting due to the writer's strike. And when they skipped ahead, she was a lot more pregnant. Like 
you can really tell in Goodbye Toby that she is very pregnant. Um, it's funny that yeah. when you're not looking for it and like you're younger and you're not as like aware of like what yeah. pregnancy looks like even above the it, belly, In the face. Like, don't notice it, but then you go back and watch it later. There's an episode as well of um, How I Met Your Mother and they're, mm-hmm. they're having a they're having some kind of party at the apartment and Lily's is obviously pregnant and she, she has like a card or something that she like holds in front of her belly the whole yeah. episode. When you watch it as an adult who knows what it looks like to mm-hmm. hide a pregnancy, you're like, you guys yeah. kind of phone it in on hiding this. Like you did not do a great job. <laughs> like, okay, you're, you're, you've hit in the belly. Congratulations. Your boobs are the size of my head. But I mean, <laughs> hey, you know what? They, they, Props to those women for working well in obvious discomfort because, uh, you know, not that I have a lot of experience with this, but I hear pregnancy is a, is a bit of a drain physically. <laughs> yeah. So um, from, from there, um, you know, season five uh, was a big boost back in terms of critical good graces. Uh, and then it was a very, very gradual critical and viewership decline, although nothing dramatic until the departure of Steve Carell in season seven. It just bottomed out in season eight. Uh, I think most people are in consensus that what the hell were we thinking with James Spader, who is a great actor, uh, but a weird fit and very annoying character in a lot of critics' eyes. Uh, Season nine was seen as a bit more of a return to form, even though you don't have Carell. And then it concluded in uh, after the ninth season with the wedding of Angela and Dwight marking its conclusion. In terms of writers, uh, Dan- Greg Daniels and Mike Sher left the writers' room after four seasons because they were developing Parks and Rec. So we have another case of showrunners leaving a show, and then there's some brain drain. Uh, they were replaced in season five by Paul Lieberstein and Jen Salata as co-showrunners, and then Jen Salata left the following season. So Toby was in charge for a few more seasons. Uh, season eight, after it was seen as such a critical failure, and also. Paul Lieberstein's pitch for the spin-off The Farm uh, was rejected. He uh, stepped down from the showrunner. Greg Daniels returned. Hallelujah. Um, the Office, over the course of its run, had 42 primetime, tr- primetime Emmy Award nominations and five wins. Most of its wins were for the show as a whole, for the cast, for writing, for directing. Steve Carell actually never won an Emmy for his performance as Michael Scott. Um, he did win a Golden Globe, so and the show received lots of SAG Awards. Peabody Awards and more. Um, I think we, there's something worth it being one of the most memeable shows of all time, maybe up there with Arrested Development. I mean, how many gifs and clips of the show? Like, I, I think there are a lot of people, there, there are millennials who have never seen The Office, I'm sure. There's, I mean, I had never seen The Office before I was 24. Um, I think there are a lot of people who know that show purely from the gifs and the memes. Like the, you know, everybody stay calm, it's happening. And, uh, yeah, or the, the endless fount of Jim's facial expression. Yeah. The like looking at the camera. And yeah, there's a lot of Jim faces that the, I, I see over and over. And Mindy Kaling has become increasingly popular with uh, like her just shaking the head or I have a lot of questions. First of all, how dare you? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. I have a coworker who uses that one on me all the time. Oh, the time. yeah. It's like his favorite one. Yeah. So, uh, and also, I'm, very certain that the phrase that's what she said was you know a thing that young men uh, everywhere used i don't think uh it was quite as popular in the in the broader nomenclature uh prior to the office so thanks for that i guess um as well boom roasted i'm, I'm not trying to say the office invented boom roasted 
But uh, thanks for making it a thing, you know? <laughs> it's comedic power really peaked with that particular episode because the roast was nothing new, you know, that was not it. But the fact that he, he used it as this kind of like... Punctuation. Yeah. Punctuation, <laughs> exactly. It was like, boom, roasted. Just elevated the humor of it that he's like, one sentence was all it took for me to roast you. Yes. I think is what it, it's, its power became like the one-liner roast is really where boom roasted kind of has its primary power. And to say something so incredibly unfunny and follow it up by Boom Roasted is just like, there's, it understood what we wanted, you know? Yeah. He absolutely. understood the assignments. Absolutely. Truly is one of my favorite episodes. I remember watching that one. That's the one where I think I laughed consistently the most yeah. was that whole episode because it was just like nonstop. I, I, yeah, I love that episode. The cold open with the fire is just the peak of chaos. And I, I will say, I I almost never compare The Office to Arrested Development. Um, I think there's there are very few shows that can be compared to Arrested Development. But something about the chaos in that, in that scene and how just unafraid they were to go insane with it. Um, if you had put like a funky little jaunty clarinet score under it, it would have been something out of an Arrested Development episode. It is really kind of amazing how you think that, and I, personally, I don't love movie or TV scenes that are just purely hinged on chaos. Like yeah. that one Transformers movie where they spend 15 minutes destroying downtown Chicago. I'm yeah. like, okay, this is stressing me out. Yeah. I'm going to clean this up. This is boring. You know, I just like don't get into it. But that scene is so funny because you think, you think they've hit the peak of all the things they're going to do. And then all of a sudden, Angela throws her cat into the ceiling. <laughs> Save Bandit! Save Bandit! And they try to, like, smash the door open with a copier. And they throw, they throw like, a printer out the window or yeah. something. And then, like, Toby falls out of the ceiling. It's like, it just, it doesn't end. And, like, even though it's just chaos start to front, there's, like, specific mechanisms of chaos that like make it funny it's not mm -hmm. like the building just keeps falling down it's like a person has fallen out of the ceiling and now a cat is falling. like it's just mm -hmm. it's so good I just there's there's so many show. great beats to it and like I mean, I've never been on a TV or movie set in my life, but just even having a few friends who are actors and stuff and knowing like or having say um Kinsey and Fisher's podcast talking about what goes into that and you think of like how talented you have to be to direct that scene and to you know work with the writers and just make sure that it all works like it it there's a reason that is such a popular scene and i i think even people forget that that is just a cold open and that it's connected all the way because it's a two-parter episode it's connected to michael's roast at the end uh, and stanley's heart attack and stuff i mean that's the same episode as the scene where they're doing the CPR and dwight cuts the head off but, or cuts the face off the dummy like they were just swinging for the fences that episode. <laughs> yeah, they really pull. I love TV episodes like that where they just yeah. pull out all the stops and they don't like save any ideas. There's there's one episode of House mm -hmm. as well. I don't know if you ever saw the show, but there's an episode where not the whole thing, they, but yeah, a, a bunch of the guys go to like um, they go to a speed dating thing, which is super funny. And there's this whole plot point where they find out that one of the more serious doctors was like in a porno when he was in college. And they just like, there's all these like really, really funny pieces that could have been sprinkled throughout the season, but yeah. they cram them all into one episode. And of course there's a serious medical issue as well, but there's so many elements of humor that they're like, you know what, throw it all in. We're just going to do it all. And it just works so well. I feel like that those two 
episodes to me are so similar that they were like, let's just go all out with this one. No subtlety. Like it just so, so when that type of episode is well done, it is so memorable. And mm-hmm. like, it always ranks high for me yeah. when I look back on shows as a whole. So I want to talk a little bit about the cast. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen that video that's gone around of um, s- other stars who were reading for uh, for The Office for some of the principal parts. Bob Odenkirk, very notably read for Michael Scott. Uh, there was, I know, Seth Rogen read for Dwight, which I would have just loved. Um, and it would have been so funny. My personal favorite uh, was John Cho reading for the role of Jim. I love John Cho. I think... Uh, and. You know, his career did take a pretty good turn around that time because 2004 was Harold and Kumar. Um, But at the time, like, he was such small roles. He was the MILF guy in uh, American Pie. He had a he had actually a very brief non-speaking role in American Beauty, if you can find it. It's when Annette when Annette Bening is showing the houses. He's a couple looking at a house. Or he's half of a couple. He yeah. he has a guest role on on House as well. He has a a role. Awesome. There's an episode where he's like a. I don't remember what he has wrong with him, but yeah, he mm. and he's really good. He he has a lot of range, and yeah. he can be really funny and also this kind of very serious, mm. almost um, kind of repressed role that he plays in that episode. He's got, he's very underrated. He's very oh, yeah. funny, and he's fantastic in Star Trek. But I mean. The who they ended up going with, aside from Steve Carell, there were so many unknowns in that cast. Um, and I mean, there a lot of them, you know, Jenna Fisher uh, had been working for, I think it was 1-800-DENTIST at the time, or maybe that was Angela Kinsey, but like they were working office jobs and temp jobs and stuff. Uh, some of them were improvisers. Angela Kinsey was an improviser. Oscar Nunez was big into improvisation. Um, but you know, it really turned a lot of people into stars uh, at the time. Um, interestingly for me, like there's a real split in terms of the cast. You have Steve Carell, who was already quite famous comedically, but he just he became a huge superstar during his run. It's no wonder he left. It's it's amazing, frankly, that he lasted until 2007 because he was such a big box office get for things like Evan Almighty and Anchorman and the sequel and um uh, it was actually because of 40-Year-Old Virgin, which um, premiered between the first and second season, that they decided to kind of rewrite Michael Scott a little bit and make him more likable because people did realize, oh, this guy's really likable. And even Steve Carell got into better shape for the movie. And like, yeah. he's like he's got a very nice body. <laughs> he's a noticeable yeah. change in his appearance. Like, mm-hmm. in the first season, his hair is always slicked like back. Yeah. back. And he yeah. make him look significantly more modern i think in the following seasons he looks a little less like obviously he's very out of touch and kind of silly but yeah he he looks far less removed from reality yeah starting with season two because they don't have him as this kind of like old dated office guy i, I think yeah. they kind of make him look his age more yeah and so he's able to age with the show in a way that's more natural they don't like prematurely age him with like the hair and yeah the tight clothes yeah but yeah steve carell um you know very likable guy also apparently just a classy class act kind guy so uh he deserves all the success he's gotten and more uh and uh yeah he's only gotten to become more of a snack since <laughs> so go go steve carell uh, and then undeniably, like, John Krasinski, you know, went from skinny old Jim to action star uh, with uh, all those Jack Ryan movies, A Quiet Place. And Mindy Kaling is a huge in her own right, especially as a writer. Uh, Craig Robinson and Ellie Kemper have found a lot of success in TV. 
But then you have the cohort of cast members that it was very obvious they were trying to make them into big stars. Like Jenna Fisher had a few leading roles. She was in Walk Hard. But then nothing really came of that. Uh, BJ Novak and Ed Helms. Like for a while, they were really trying to make Ed Helms a superstar. And now he's just like a guy who shows up as a bit player in random old sitcom and random NBC sitcoms. And then you do have everyone else who basically has just been an NBC day player since then. You know, Kate Flannery. There, there's pretty much a shared Office Brooklyn Nine-Nine universe at this point because so many former Office people have shown up in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, I mean, obviously Craig Robinson being the Pontiac Bandit, but like Ed Helms has had a role. Kate Flannery's had a role. Oscar Nunez played a doctor. So they'll, they'll show up there eventually, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's the two interesting ones that I remember hearing about in terms of how they kind of got into the show is Kate Flannery... Mm-hmm didn't quit her waitress job until like season two or three yeah she just didn't think it would be anything she's like yeah whatever like it's just another it's just another like struggling actress job you know like i'm just gonna grab it so she didn't quit until two or three seasons into the show it took her that long to recognize that it was gonna be yeah and then um phyllis smith she was like a casting director yeah something like she was she was just an assistant yeah yeah they were like you know you would actually be really funny on this show. Like we mm-hmm. can kind of create this role for you. So she wasn't even trying to be an actor. And then she wound up voicing a major character in a Pixar. Oh movie. yeah. She's sadness in, um, in, inside out. out. Yeah. Yeah. She, so she, and she hasn't, you know, been as big as someone like a Steve Carell or a John Krasinski. Yeah, if like, you look at nine seasons of the office and a Pixar movie, like that's her, that's your retirement fund there, you know, like, and, and it's, you know, uh, very Jessica Walter uh, in Arrested Development. Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. yeah. Good for her. And honestly, if I, like, had to be a famous person, that's kind of how I'd want to do it. It's like, she's recognizable as Phyllis. Like, people know mm-hmm. her. They love her. She's a beloved character. And she can have a life. She's not so famous that yeah. she basically becomes a shut. And she can go out and, like, live a regular life and have these cool impacts on people's cultural experience i'm like that's the dream like she nailed it i just Mm -hmm. think she is yeah yeah she's so doggone funny as Philip. yeah so um and actually although speaking of arrested development we're doing a watch through right now because obviously jessica walter recently passed away what what a sad thing to happen um phyllis smith is an extra in some of the bluth boardroom scenes so my guess is she probably worked on that show too and just got pulled in as an extra because that's what she'd been doing yeah yeah, um, and she seems like she's such a good sport about it. Like, yeah, why not go and hop in there? Just, yeah. Just Phyllis Smith yeah. was also, uh, growing up, she, like me, she was a dancer and um, was actually, you know, in her uh, early adult years, kind of a semi-professional dancer. And um, there are some great pictures of her. Just like she, you know, I think people think when someone hits 50, like they're like, oh, she was probably always this frumpy old late. She was stunning. She was just stunning and looked so full of life and fun. and that's when you see like she has always been a performer you know so it feels and also there were a lot of occasions in which phyllis got to dance in that show and you can actually really see it like this lady can move you can and i think in the way she has like just enough physical comedy in the show that you can see that she really knows how to use her body as yeah a, as a tool for humor 
And I think you can really see when you get like a really good smile out of that character, you can see a little shadow of like what an absolute knockout she must have been. Oh yeah. And she, I mean, she's beautiful now. She's got such a great smile, but it's, I love hearing that. She really was a good sport about how much, uh, I mean, I guess you have to do this, this anytime you're in a comedy and especially anytime you're a woman over 30 or a woman who's not a size two, but like she dealt with it. She was a good sport about how many jokes were about Phyllis's appearance and how old Phyllis looked and stuff, which although on the show, Phyllis and Michael were supposed to be the same age and that was the joke, she is about 10 years older than Steve Carell. So yeah, uh, I suppose yeah. you can, you can, it's easier to take the humor when that's the truth. Did they ever confirm whether or not they actually did go to high school together? Yeah, I, I think that was outright said like, oh yeah, we all, we always used to make fun of you. We thought you were gay. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. He's like, back in high school, we all called her Easy Rider. Oh, that was, I think, the most unsympathetic Michael had ever looked in the uh, in yeah. the early seasons, at least. It, it kind of jumps around. Uh, I mean, Michael Scott is one of those characters that, depending on the writer, how much sympathy you're supposed to have for him just goes in and out the window. Like, one of my favorite episodes in terms of Michael Scott's sympathy factors is Survivor Man. I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah, because it's one of the greatest ways to um, derive sympathy. And this is not just an office thing. This is uh, any any TV show or book or movie uh, to find to kind of derive sympathy or empathy for someone else is to use the point of view of another character. And in that you see that Michael has literally isolated himself from everyone because he's, you know, gone to live out this fantasy life in the forest for a couple days. Uh, but then you have Jim, who is in Michael's position for the day, and he has kind of um, metaphorically isolated himself because, you know, you make one decision, it pisses people off, and then you try to undo that decision, you end up pissing more people off. Uh, Phyllis accidentally calls Jim Michael, and he wants to bury himself in the ground. And at the end, you know, when they're all having uh, they're all having their birthday party, and Michael comes back, and first of all, everyone appreciates Michael so much. Oh, they're, which, they're so excited to hear his yeah. voice and that big crazy mm -hmm. yeah. And there's that one line of uh, like, oh, I, I never know what that's what she said really means. Uh, I just do it to relieve the tension, and uh, you, you start like there's just this look when Jim suddenly gets it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that that episode really is a wild swing of the many sides of Michael. The fact that he's just leaving the office to be like, oh yeah, I can live in the woods. I can do this, this weird insecurity of needing to prove mm. that he can do this crazy thing that he obviously can't. His obvious incompetence has like never been more apparent than it is in this episode, especially when you have Dwight there who is a big fan of Michael. And even he's looking at the camera and being like, this guy he's, does not know what he's yeah. doing. Like, He's so pitiable and he's saying all these dumb lines like he cut his pants apart and then he put them back on. It's just so bad. And then you have this moment between him and Jim that is so sweet. And it's yeah. the most you really see Michael is like, you know, maybe he isn't actually this really dopey character. Yeah. Maybe he recognizes that this is the kind of leader they need. And so he steps into this role. You kind of have these moments where you're like, maybe he act maybe there's more to him than you think. Yeah. But then they juxtapose that against him being like, well, I have tented my pants. But yeah, that episode is like a wild ride as far as like your your feelings about Michael from minute to minute. Yeah. How drastically they change. They they do that um still somewhat effectively, but I think a lot more ham-fisted in the episode, I think it's a season six episode or season five, uh, Murder, uh, which is when they have the uh, murder mystery game. Uh, and it's because they're trying to distract from the fact that Dunder Mifflin 
might actually be sold and and they might all be out of a job and at that point you know jim is the uh jim is the co-manager and the, the reason i think is a little ham-fisted be, is because i think they just hit the beat too many times once jim became the manager of like um you know jim understands that michael's job is hard and you know jim jim does things differently than michael and sometimes michael is justified like I just think they did it too many times. Like they did it in Koi Pond. They did it in, they did it in murder. Uh, so it was, it was a bit too much. And I know that's why, like they, they brought Jim back down to a salesperson because viewers didn't like Jim as a manager either, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. But, um, I mean, murder is not a terrible episode. And partially, I think I have a lot of affection for it because you have Oscar Nunez's reading of plantation, <laughs> like, which is so bad. Um, and, but, um, and then another very jiffable moment is the um, the three way uh, quote unquote Mexican standoff at the end with the finger guns and uh, Jenna oh, Fisher yeah. walking out like the room. At each other. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's it, it is a pretty good episode, but just I, I have I have a thing with TV um, TV shows about beats that are hit too many times, especially when it's a very long running show. Um, that uh, yeah, which I I'm really glad when I was looking through our pre notes that you and I fall in the same category here as kind of seeing season four as the peak because i know it's it's really popular to say season three is the peak um and and i i do understand why people say the end of season three is the perfect ending because you've got uh you know this very depressing theme of michael just coming back to scranton his life has not changed Jim and Pam finally get together, and then there's this kind of really delicious ending of Ryan the Temp is made the new uh, made the new boss, and that line reading of "You and I are done." It's so good, like his little what? smile. <laughs> he yeah. looks right at the camera, um, like that. I sure that could have been a, a series finale, and I would have been super pleased with that. But I also think season four kind of has a bit of a perfect ending as well. Um, it kind of flips a lot of things like Ryan's fall from grace. Um, as ridiculous as it is, it's a really nice way to put a bow on that story, um, which is good because honestly, Ryan is one of the weakest aspects of the show after that. They so don't know what to do with him. Um, he, he's just an entirely different character after that. Although, again, soft spot for like good line readings of when BJ Novak just stands up and goes, America's one big mall. And like, he does become a projection of like why everyone hates hipsters, which is fine, but like just that's not who he was when it started. So it's really hard to reconcile that. Uh, I think one of the more powerful things too about Ryan's story, and I don't think I really appreciated this until I was an adult who worked in an office environment, is he, he really is such like a perfect representation of that kind of out of touch leadership person who oh, yeah. read one business development book that they liked and are now trying to implement without actually trying to get people on board with it conceptually. They're just mm -hmm. showing up and they're like, all right, guys, now it's time for synergistic management solutions. Yeah. And people are like, um, can we have better health benefits? Yeah. <laughs> like, I think the fact that they, they have this story arc where this kind of unremarkable character suddenly becomes a leader and he's mm -hmm. clearly not qualified for it, but for yeah. some reason knows how to sweet talk management and then suffers the consequences of that yeah. is so satisfying. Because we all know those people who it's like, what are you doing in leadership? You don't know what you're doing. And then yeah. he actually is so aggressively vilified for that, that mm -hmm. there's this kind of like 
almost sick degree of like satisfaction from watching totally. his race in the way that he does. Yeah. And when they bring him back, yeah, it's like not as good as it is in the beginning. Yeah. Like you said, he really peaks with that. You and I are done that. Yeah. The way that he encapsulates that one particular office personality and that full story arc is so well done. And, and you know, people have said, and I, I agree with this, like what made the office lose its magic and its strength was that it lost a lot of the observational qualities which to an you know to a certain degree frankly when you're in a, a single situation setting like unlike a lot of other sitcoms what I'll give part or what I'll give um the office a lot of credit for is they don't really leave the office that much whereas something like Parks and Rec which recently came on Netflix Canada so I was I did a rewatch they it's like after the third season or so they felt so limited by the parks department that it became not about the parks department it became about like city council and the the city of pawnee and stuff and like the office always stays in the office at least so you you got to give it credit for that but um yeah it did lose some of the more observational qualities but um with season four the one thing they hadn't touched on to that point was like you said those managers that are young and hip and they know the buzzwords but they they just cannot manage anything and that scene of him doing the talking head of like we're taking paper to the streets wall street it is what it is and like just going through all the buzzwords like i've i've worked in tech startups and like it's i'm just like i thought this was supposed to be a parody <laughs> it's... Yeah. or when he's like trying to turn the paper purchasing online platform into a social network yeah. It's like, I see this in, I work in B2B, so you see this a lot with like B2B companies that try to break into social media. Yeah. It's like, that's not where your audience is. When your audience is on Instagram, they're not thinking about work. They're doing that in a personal capacity, but there's just this repeat attempts to somehow bring this like cool social element to a business area that is inherently neither cool nor social. Mm -hmm. And yet he won't let it go. He's like, you're discussing the latest music. You're talking to your friends. It's like you're flying paper, man. Like I get that you clearly want to work in Silicon Valley, but this isn't yeah. that. And he's just trying so hard to like turn it into that. Try yeah. to be the next like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, and he just cannot make it happen. And it's so funny because and and like again, I know people who work in consumer brands like don't understand this, but like B two B brands want to be consumer brands so badly, and they oh, yeah. because they're so like I used to work for a marketing magazine, and they are so inspired by consumer marketing they're like we can do this uh and it really like they and they made fun of this in the eighth season which nothing about the eighth season is that great but um <laughs> the way everyone wanted to be doing the steve jobs style keynote and just you know what you're not steve jobs and there there was only room for one steve jobs and now there's room for no steve jobs like um yeah yeah so with the, with the fourth season finale the other thing is like dwight and angela that it brought them full circle um with everything you know like you said yourself that was that moment where you're like oh my god um i think after that everything was a bit too strained um but with with the fourth season the joke is like things will always reset dwight and angela will always come back to each other um you know, I'm not going to lie, everything after that, especially when you involved the senator, it just became, they, they became a very exhausting presence for me. It was nice to see them end on getting married because, you know, they, it was a sweet wedding in a very funny episode. But the Andy, Angela, Dwight thing, you know, Dwight, Angela, the senator, Oscar, you know, it, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> I wonder too, because I, I, when I was watching the show as someone who was a teenager and obviously had never worked in an office environment, 
there were a lot of the very office centric themes that I couldn't relate to as mm-hmm. much. So I think what I was most invested in was the Jim and Pam romance, which we yeah. can also talk about that. Oh, yeah. And that as an adult, I'm like, that was a disaster from start to finish. But yes. I think what I wonder is by get, Pam and Jim get together at like the end of the third season, you see things come together in the fourth season. I wonder if they realized we we need another will they won't they romance yeah this one has been resolved they tried it with everyone yeah and the thing that's interesting is i think from the beginning of the show it's kind of positioned that jim and pam are kind of the two normal ones and everyone else is kind of a caricature of an office personality yeah they go back and forth between being more or less extreme versions of those caricatures but jim and pam very much start out as they're the ones that you can relate to yeah and i think in that for that reason, that's why the appeal of their love story was so successful because yeah. you could see yourself in Jim or Pam as these like really normal people. Dwight and Angela are inherently so weird. Dwight yeah. especially is like such a wacky character. They're rarely likable. So yeah. yeah, it's like you can't see yourself in them. So it's yeah. kind of fun to watch that love story, but you can't relate to it Not in the all. same way that you can Jim and Pam. And the other thing is they push the boundaries so much with Dwight and Angela, like with like with Jim and Pam, you know, they have like the one illicit kiss, but that's kind of the end of them like crossing boundaries. Mm-hmm. Whereas Dwight and Angela are sleeping together for weeks, months, like so long at the office. Like it's so much harder to identify with, oh, that might be mm-hmm. a situation I could find myself in versus mm-hmm. Oh, like this guy at the office. I kind, you know, so it's like not like I've ever done these things, but it's you can't relate to Dwight and Angela, and that's why I think that the will they won't they appeal of their relationship is kind of harder to be as invested in on like an emotional level as it is Jim and Pam. Yeah. So once you get Jim and Pam together, they're trying to like shove these other couples to like the forefront. Yeah. And because they've created all these characters to be inherently ridiculous they kind of set them up to fail in terms of resonating with the audience as much as Jim and Pam. Yeah. And, and like, I think that's also because writers recognize, although no one ever acknowledges this out loud, but it's so much more fun for an audience to watch people and ask, will they, won't they, than it is to actually see them just have a relationship and be normal functioning people. People don't want that. And I'm convinced that it's because people project their workplace and school and peer group crushes onto these people, um, which is you know, kind of the problem that I had with the Jim Pam relationship, you know, and I'll also say this because I was about to say, like, I've, I've worked in a lot of offices and I haven't seen that many office romances, um, except that except that I married a guy that I used to work with. So, <laughs> so maybe that's so funny. I don't think I knew that about you. you know, Garrett, that's hilarious. He uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and so we also we rarely mentioned it a lot because um, we only started dating after I left, but it was like two weeks after I left. Um, and like, there's a bit of an age difference. He's 16 years older than me. And so like, it was a kind of thing like, oh, my God, how do we tell people like this is, you know, this is bizarre. And like, it, it seems way less weird now that I'm in my 30s. But, you know, it was a lot to explain to people. Um, but he, you know, 
I, he was the IT guy, so he always showed up first uh, to unlock, and I was always very eager. I, w- I was the second earliest person to get there. Uh, he handed me my laptop on my first day, and I immediately was just like, oh my gosh, he's so cute. I had no idea he was that much older than me because he looks, he looks very young. Uh, and then he mentioned, oh yeah, I've known our boss for about 20 years. So, and I'm like, you don't look old enough to have known anyone for 20 years. Um, so, so yeah. Story. Yeah, and, and like when we when we did announce that we were together and especially when we were getting married, like everyone at our office was really happy for us, but it wasn't an office romance. Technically, I guess you could say there was some Jim Pam elements of us being a little flirty together at the beginning. But, um, but, but other than that, and I've worked in some pretty big offices, I've, those things are rarely as idealized as the Jim Pam thing. And I, I think in order, like, one thing that I was also kind of unhappy about is, like, David Denman, who played Roy, he's actually a very, very good actor. He, is, he has so much range, and yet people just see him as Roy forever. So I see this as kind of a disappointing thing, because the one thing that disappointed me is about the third season, which the third season is an incredibly strong season, but I feel like they made... I think they got a little overzealous with how much of a villain they made Roy into, um, especially with like, it's really unfortunate that they made kind of his final note of him being extremely violent and basically abusive, even if he doesn't actually strike Pam, like he's very, it's the guy that punches the wall right next to you because that's so much better. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think like, you can you can't say Roy's a good person after that, you can't. Um, But it's kind of to me, I think love triangles are more interesting, and I can't remember the last time I saw this on TV, um, where the person that someone's with is actually just a fine, good person, and the only problem is they're not you. And, like, because that is how a lot of love triangles actually are in real life. Someone's with, you, you love someone, they're with someone else, and that other person is a perfectly fine person. Like, it's it's so much easier, and, like, because I, I think... Jim reminds me, this is a weird comparison, but Randy from Scream, because he's like every skinny, nerdy dude like projects onto them like, oh, I identify with this so well. And it's so, you know, if you make her, if you make the other girl's boyfriend this horrible, abusive monster, of course you have to root for Jim. And like, I don't know if Jim and Pam were actually that good of a couple. Like, there's a weird thing where I'm just like, newsflash, like being able to laugh with someone is not the only thing that makes someone a good couple. I agree. I, I also think on the flip side, I think, I don't know if you've seen this meme about the office where it's like one of the most pivotal moments of adulthood was mm-hmm. realizing that Karen Filipelli oh. did nothing wrong. And oh I my God. Her because she wasn't Pam. Because yeah. it's so similar. Like, obviously, they don't give her this really, really distressing mm-hmm. fall from grace the way they do with Roy. But they kind of make her, of they kind of make her into a hard ass. Like, they make her kind of bitchy. Like, I don't know. They just make it so she's like, there's nothing inherently wrong with her, but they, yeah. because Pam is so kind of like mousy and yeah. sweet and like comforts people when they're sad. Like, I think Karen, if she wasn't, if she hadn't been juxtaposed against Pam, I think people would really like Karen. Like she's, she's like such she's an ambitious character. She yeah. is. She's interesting. She's obviously, honestly, if you ask me, like, I think she's too good for Jim because Jim is kind of oh, this yeah. like dopey guy. Like we can get into that, but I think Justice for Karen Filippelli is like one of my strongest platforms as yes. an adult. She actually is this really great character. Yeah. And yet I remember we're all kind of taught to hate her yeah. or see her as bad. Mm-hmm. Really, her greatest flaw is that she just wasn't 
camp yeah. who we were set up from the beginning to root for. And the one thing I will say is that she gets like such a great ending because she's like the man married, of another yeah. branch. She's married happily. She and her there's that cute picture of her and her husband, like in Nassau, yeah. expecting a baby doing great in her career like she has like such a positive ending that i'm like the fact that and even how she and pam have like a sweet that was one of my kind of style yeah like i part of me feels like why couldn't they have had that for jim and roy like they Mm. both like basketball they could have just been bros and like men are what i've observed is a lot of men are really good at kind of just like moving past those things and being friends like they could have had like a really sweet ending for roy Mm -hmm. and yet they kind of make him into this like abusive violent aggressive villain in a way that i'm like is that really how we like did we have to go that far and then people to see that roy wasn't the guy for pam when they bring roy back occasionally after that you know they bring him back once when pam is in new york they bring him back for his wedding and he's been so rehabbed for his wedding and it's nice because you see like oh the right person brought out the right stuff in him but it's like but he still like smashed up an entire bar and went to tackle someone in an office like you, they took him past the point of being forgivable, which I think was a mistake. But I agree with you. Like, and one of the ni- really nice things about season three, because like I, I'm when I say that I don't think season three is the peak, I actually still think it's an extremely strong season. Um, I think what's what's a really nice part about season three is the way Pam and Karen actually have a really nice friendship. The Christmas party episode in that, which like, what a great uncomfortable episode. Like with the, I mean. Even even Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey agreed on their podcast, like the waitress joke, like you you can't do that again. You can't do that in twenty twenty one. Um but but I will say the joke is on Michael for being so racist and ignorant that he can't tell his girlfriends apart, uh, or t- can't tell the waitresses apart. Um, you know, he's it's very clearly mocking Michael, but it's still it's a very sensitive joke to make and it's like it's kind of unnecessary. Um but yeah, like that that Christmas party episode where they come together. Um, is so great. And then it, it's Karen who is crushed because Jim was so dishonest about Pam. And, um, yeah. you know, like, yeah, I think Jim ain't shit. And I, I do like that the series eventually goes on to uh, to show that Jim ain't shit. Um, you know, when, when Idris Elba, which like, <laughs> be still my heart, you get Idris Elba for a so multi-episode beautiful. arc. Idris Elba is so funny. Like, he's... I kind of wish they would have let him be funnier for some reason i didn't i think back when i first saw that show i was like still such a gym stand that i couldn't mm-hmm. really get behind a character who basically functions to make jim look stupid mm-hmm. and so it was like hard for me to really like him but i kind of wish they would have like let him take that uber business guy persona like even further yeah. but it's also hard because like he's just so beautiful that i just like want to look at him i'm like oh you're so talented and so handsome How the way you? the way dwight puts it really sums it up perfectly and i do feel like he's being an audience surrogate there for sure when he goes, Aw, the new boss doesn't find Jim adorable. Like Oh yeah. Yeah. Because oh, so we're just we're we are supposed to agree with everything Jim does. And I mean like final season Jim, my God. Like I know a lot of people appreciated season nine as a return to form, but it was also this weird thing where like the Jim and Pam tension it felt like too little too late because they were just the perfect couple, perfect couple, perfect couple. And like let's throw in some, you know, some conflict and man what conflict like jim invests ten thousand dollars of their money into a business without telling pam and like we're supposed to kind of believe in this like both sidesism about the two of them like i think so i have to confess that i've actually never seen like the last couple of 
seasons because I just like lost interest. I just like couldn't stay invested after a certain point. So I you're I not wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I kind of know what happens in the end, but I don't know in detail. And I think one of the things that is frustrating to me is the fact that they kind of set it up in such a way in the beginning that Pam is kind of held back from her potential as a graphic designer mm-hmm. because Jim is in Scranton and because like she needs to be somewhere like New York or Philadelphia, which is, I don't know how true that is anymore, but at the time it was sort of a, the vision was if you want to have a job like that, you have to be in one of these big cities. And she's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, I can't because Jim is here. And so she kind of is held back from that career path, which I think could have been such a cool redemption arc for yeah. her because she's kind of like, mousy and boring and forgettable like I'm not a huge Pam fan like anymore she's just like not an interesting character if you ask me but she could have been like that one scene when they make the commercial and she's like up all night working on that animation and it's so cool and so fun like wouldn't it have been cool to see her really sore Mm -hmm. but instead she's kind of held back and then in the end Jim goes to Philadelphia anyway and does it kind of behind her back and like doesn't really do it in the best way it's like they could have both gone to this big city together and brought Mm. their family there and had interesting, compelling career arcs there. And instead, they turn both characters into anchors that are keeping the other person back from their full career potential. And it's like, why couldn't this have been a thing that they did together? And we Mm. could have rooted for them together and been so excited for the fact that they kind of started out in this forgettable little company and forgettable job and then we're able to move their careers forward yeah. together as a couple what a cool story arc that would have been and yeah. what a modern story arc that would have been instead of a woman giving up on her career for a man and then a man leaving his family behind in favor of his career yeah like that's so not modern and it could have been so much better if they would have synchronized those two storylines oh you know what I, I mean? agree because like, even in the end when pam kind of becomes um like the the very last episode of of season nine is her saying like okay you know i like you've been making all the big decisions for our relationship it's time for me to make a big decision but the big decision is i sold our house so that we can move to austin and support your career and it's like i i guess good for you but you're right there's so much wasted potential with pam the the one thing that i do like that they explored about pam in later seasons um although I guess my problem with this is she was kind of like, she really became the Michael whisperer and how, how much she understood and had this deep affection for Michael. And that's why like uh, the scene of her meeting Michael at the airport and talking silently like that really guts you every time. Um, And um, what uh, I know uh, Jenna Fisher has said was they asked her to just like, don't, you know, your, your lines aren't being recorded. So like, whatever you say, like, just say goodbye to your friend, Steve. And it was her saying goodbye to Steve Carell. And even uh, the note that Jim put in the teapot uh, when when Pam reads it in the you know second last season or second last episode, that was uh, a note that they had John Krasinski write to Jenna Fisher about the the time that they spent together and how much he valued it. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like it, it just to, to me, it made me want to like write letters to all my friends about how much I loved them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. but but yeah, what like the other uh pam or yeah pam and michael moments that i think is really special uh, where you kind of see the fact that the pam character really does try to have a friendship with everyone like she even tries with angela even though angela is so and dwight yeah and dwight i love with his concussion i love that episode with them together 
That's so sweet. Oh, yeah. And they're like joking around and having fun. She's like, no, Dwight's not my friend. Or when he comforts her Wait, when Dwight's kind of my yeah. friend. <laughs> when he comforts her when she's crying, like, yeah, she does try you're right, she does try to be friends with everyone. She does. And one of my favorite scenes of where you kind of see the relationship between Pam and Michael based on how close they got during the Michael Scott paper company era is I, I think it's I think the episode is called the delivery when she gives birth to Cece mm-hmm. and she's freaking out and she's being so irrational and crazy about not willing to go to the hospital and she's not ready. Mm-hmm. And the one who calms her down and gets her to go to the hospital yeah. is Michael. Yeah. He's like, Pam, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do yeah. when we get there? What like he's the one who can like connect with her and recognize what she needs in that moment. And it's a reversal of how she talked to him when he was kind of in his lowest moments during the Michael Scott paper era and or Michael Scott paper company era. And it's just so sweet to see the way that these two characters connect and in the most necessary moments are able to give each other what they need in order to move forward. And I just love that episode because you see him, there's a few spots, including the episode where he talks to Jim at the birthday party and in this moment with Pam, where you see him actually step into his role as a manager who knows how to care for people yeah. in the way that they need. Yeah. And I think like those moments are so redeeming for him because he's such a like dunderhead so often that when he's able to like be a leader and be like, okay, I'm going to step in and take care of you right now. Those moments are so special. Yeah. So it's like my favorite Michael and Pam moments when he's like, Pam, where are we going to go? Yeah. And what are we going to have? in the car yeah you know like that's the thing is we talk about peaks and uh one of the questions that i always end this on but i think i think it's become incredibly evident that like you know if you were to ask someone like if you're to tell someone who had never watched this to watch it you know do you have them watch it from start to finish do you say you know just watch everything chronologically up until here um or you can just tune into a random episode and it would be good and as much as i do think the office could have ended after season three and frankly should have ended after season four is kind of how I put it. Um, you lose out on a lot of good stuff. You know, d- is it stuff that the world needed? No, but they really did over those coming five seasons, you know, uh, with all the kind of bad and unnecessary stuff. There was also a lot of really amazing stuff that we might have never gotten to the to the key of Michael. Um, I, I have this in my notes because, again, like, I'll, I'll never be able to shut up about being an entertainment trade reporter in a past life, which, like, thank God I'm, I've moved on to cow shit since then. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think so. What I have is that a lot of comedies, longer running comedies, tend to overstay their welcome. And that's like a common complaint is like, oh, this could have ended after after the third season. You know, I have I have Parks and Rec on my to do list for a reason, because that's a comedy that we also uh, regard as having overstayed its welcome. The Simpsons really overstayed its welcome by about 20 years. Um, and a lot of people will complain about them lasting too long. And while I agree with that ideologically, you know, putting on my trade reporter hat, there's there's an economic there's an economic equation to this. So, and it's that comedies are really really cheap to produce. Uh, even when you pass certain landmarks, like the um, fifth or sixth season, is when your principal actors will usually get significant raises. They're still so much cheaper to produce than a sixty minute drama, especially on something like The Office, where aside from Steve Carell, no one was commanding that big of a of a payday. Like you know, they're still making actor salaries, but um, it's and. If you look at the ratio of comedies that make it versus don't make it, it's really, really rare that a comedy makes it past one or two seasons. You know, I, I reported on the upfronts every year and like, do you remember the neighborhood? Do you remember the unicorn? Do you remember splitting up together? No, like no one does. 
which Splitting Up Together actually starred Jenna Fisher, and it lasted less than a season. Um, and they fail, and the networks, especially these days, pull the plug immediately. So when you think about something like The Office that actually managed to get bigger and bigger as the seasons go on, you're getting a lot of ROI out of a show like that. Like there's, it, This costs pennies to produce compared to the dollars that it brings in. So as much as the end product isn't that good, like from an economic standpoint, I understand why they keep it going. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's hard to know. It's kind of like investing in the stock market. No, you can't you can't predict what's going to be a hit. You can't predict what it's going to tank. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a best guess thing that they're like, man, people are really into this Jim and Pam thing. Like we should see how far we can take this. And we've kind of put a bow on that. But can we take it with these other characters? Yeah. It's, it's like hard to know. And then the other thing that's tough is even if a show is maybe critically considered bad, it doesn't mean that people aren't going to watch it. So oh, it's like, of well, course, yeah. Maybe, maybe you tank your reputation a little bit, but if you're still making money, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like how many people absolutely hate Big Bang Theory? It's still out there going. Uh, it, end, it ended last year, it. but... But it. Yeah. it didn't two years ago. But uh, and I again, I, I used to write up uh, TV ratings uh, weekly with my job. Reruns of The Big Bang Theory bring in more than new comedies. Like that, that's what's crazy to me. Um, you know, when we and you mentioned it again, the idea of rebottling the Jim and Pam magic with another couple. Um, again, I, I don't think they were ever really successful at it. And also, yeah, like there's there's not that much office romance per capita in the world. Sorry. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I'm a reporter. Reporters are horny all the time. And I have not seen it that much. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's not a stereotype I knew about reporters. I'll have to, I'll have um, to do some research on that. So, uh, fun fact, in 2012, I was it was my last year as a student journalist. And I was at a student journalism conference in Victoria, B.C., and that was my first experience with an actual quarantine because there was a norovirus outbreak at our hotel. And like, you know, a quarter, I think a quarter to 30% of us got sick. I did not. But oh my yeah, gosh. but that is hilarious. Um, the, the conference uh, is called, Na if, if you look it up, like it made national news. If you just look up student journalism, norovirus outbreak. Uh, so that's my, that's, <laughs> that's my claim that to fame. So um, weirdly enough, one of the guys who was also in that outbreak from another paper, we worked together for like five years after that. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, you were at Pukefest 2012. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, those, those areas, um, those conferences, which I went to a few as a student journalism are basically just extended orgies. Like journalists, like they're, we're thirsty people. We like facts. We like so press funny. freedom and we, we like getting it. So. I can't imagine any <laughs> phrase other than nonstop orgy that would describe a tire conference less. <laughs> like, like the most like staid, like uptight. Like, don't get me wrong. The tire industry is, it is what it is. But yeah, that, yeah absolutely not how I would describe that. Or any audible yeah. But yeah, yeah. The, the so I think the closest they came to the Jim Pam magic and I know they they tried hardest with. Uh, Aaron and Pete in the last season, which who? Um, but uh, yeah, well, that, I just know him because that's Jake Lacey, right? Yes, who was in one of my he's favorite so underrated yeah. movies, Obvious Child. Fantastic, fantastic oh, yeah. movie. He's also in. Um, he's in How to Be Single with Dakota, I haven't seen that. Dakota Johnson, who's in that one. I have he not seen like that. A, he has this kind of unexpected role as like a love interest. He's he's like 
so lovable in that movie. He's he's like so yeah. cute, but yeah, how to be single? I think it's Dakota Johnson who's in that, and Rebel Wilson. Nice. And yeah, Jake Lacey has like the most wonderful yeah. role. Like it's 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 a kind of an unexpected role for a male side of a love interest of a heterosexual love dynamic, but yeah. it's a wonderful one. I highly recommend it. It's a great movie. I think the main reason why uh, you know using them to recreate the Jim Pam, Pam dynamic doesn't work is because. Pete was a new character who like was so no and they they full on called him new Jim. He was so similar to Jim. You know, they hung a lampshade on it in in universe. But Erin was also already like she was officed by then. She was already Flanderized. She was already so weird. You know, when she was introduced, she was pretty damn normal. And she was just off the walls, too stupid to function by the ninth season. And so it's like, I don't I don't think this really works. This isn't Jim and Pam, two normal people in a sea of weirdos. Um, no, the, the romance that I thought came the closest, uh, was Michael and Holly. You know, I did think it was too yeah, drawn out and it was too angsty after that, but also the angst was some of Steve Carell's best work. Like in the, the episode where he goes to Winnipeg of all places, which Winnipeg, yay. Um, Winnipeg! and he calls David Wallace after and he's like, why did you send her away? That was so, so sucky to do. And like, God, Steve Carell keeps breaking my heart. Um, yes. it, but also because what is a sweet quality about Michael and uh, and Holly is how Holly, who's also, you know, a lower key weirdo than Michael, but like how she brings out the normal in him. And I say this as a person who is extremely weird. And like, I, I know I'm self-deprecating about this, but I am weird to the point where I alienate people and I don't always like know how to behave in front of other people. And like, I knew that Jared was kind of quote unquote the one because he made me so normal. And I realized like, oh, it's because I'm uncomfortable around 99% of people that I act so weird because when I'm uncomfortable, like I act frankly like a more realistic version of Michael Scott sometimes. Like I'm a bit like, hey, look at me. Um, <laughs> and just like the right person so calms you down and centers you. And I thought that that was a, a very well-observed thing about Michael and Holly, how like he behaves himself around her, how he's actually able to be funny around her and his jokes land. And, you know, Jim, Jim was right. Michael was killing it with Holly. So I, I think that was a special thing. Like, obviously that can't be a long lasting arc because you can't get Amy Ryan for every episode, which, and they did reunite to play sort of a couple in the movie, Beautiful Boy. Um, they played uh, amicable exes, I will say, in that movie. And so it was nice, like, oh, Michael and Holly back together, sort of. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, the if you were to end on the introduction of Holly and giving Michael some hope, um, and then, you know, you don't even need to conclude that. You just have this nice little ray of hope. Because, like, yeah, to me, if you were to say end it after season four, you don't get dinner party. You don't get uh, one of my favorite episodes, Night Out, uh, which is when they go and they see how much of a mess Ryan's life actually is. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that was a great episode. I would actually say it's almost as good as Dinner Party, but Dinner Party has the feeling of a one-act play in the best best of ways. It does. It's funny. Dinner Party is such a funny one, too, because I, I feel like, apart from Karen you don't see a lot of the women in the show getting really strong career finishes oh, with the show. Like, poor Jan. And Jan actually started out as like, you know, she's kind of, she's kind of tough, but like she was successful. She was commanding. She was respected. And then she just tanks into yeah. this totally crazy character on so many levels. And it's very 
funny, but it also is kind of sad that like the one strong woman in leadership who's yeah. kind of like the most similar to a woman in leadership that you would see today and who kind of would have been an interesting outlet for exploring the mm. ways in which women have to kind of harden themselves to function in the workplace with a ton of men. Like that could have been such yeah. an interesting exploration of that dynamic. And instead they just like, Michael like, ruins oh. her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's such an interesting pivot from Holly too, because I think a big part of Jan and Michael's relationship is Jan talking Michael down and making him smaller. Mm-hmm. Whereas Holly loves Michael just as he is. Yeah. You know, so like, that's an interesting thing, but that's, that's one of the things that's so like kind of conflict laden for me with dinner party is that episode is so funny, but so much of the fun, the humor hinges on the ridiculousness of Jan, mm-hmm. who I kind of wish they would have had a different story arc for her and yeah. explored like what it's like to be a woman in leadership in a corporate environment. But again, you would have missed out on dinner party, which yeah. is so funny. Like, oh, when I feel stressed, I just come up here and smell all my candles. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like trying not to bark because the candles smell yeah. so bad. And she's like, oh, they're just, I like, guess the whole thing is just so funny. And yeah, yeah, it's kind of an interesting, like, the direction to go with her character. I wish they would have done something different. And yet I wouldn't want yeah. to talk on dinner party. Yeah. And, and I do think you could have possibly went somewhat in that direction without going too crazy which is that like i would say having jan be you know resigned to a relationship with michael and depressed and stuff i don't think that's entirely that bad but like what it i didn't like that they just made jan so inept uh after getting fired from dunder mifflin because like she went from having so much reason in everything she did to actually also being kind of stupid and vapid, mm-hmm. which I think really stunk. Um, it was nice when they brought her back a few times after, like she had, um, you know, she had a successful business, or she became, you know, head of the, the Scranton White Pages. But she's also still nuts, and so mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, oh, poor Jan. Uh, there's a character yeah. I, I didn't write anything about this in my notes, but I think one person that I think needs a lot of praise, and also this is a character who was delightful, but unlike a lot of delightful characters, did not overstay his welcome. Andy Buckley as David Wallace. And I think he's oh, yeah. so interesting because as, again, I, I keep bringing up the Office Ladies podcast, but um, they had him as a guest. I had no idea. He wasn't an actor or he was like, he wasn't a work, like a working actor, you know, looking for parts. He was an actual stockbroker. He was, you know, he worked for Merrill Lynch as an analyst and was doing wow. so while working on The Office. And they brought him in because he had that, he brought that realism to it. And you would never know that this guy had never acted or he hadn't never acted before, but he'd done like theater and stuff. You would not know that he wasn't quote unquote an actor. You know, he like, yeah. what a great fit. Um, he just nailed that mm-hmm. role, that like really highly competent leader. And the way he, he hangs on by a thread with his patience for Michael. And yet also what I think is very sweet is as much as he has so little patience for Michael, he also has an affection for him because he acknowledges, you know what, he wouldn't hurt a fly. And, and even like in the deposition, uh, which it precedes Dinner Party, which the deposition is almost as good as Dinner Party in the tension yeah. that it brings to those characters. And when you see David Wallace's conflict and, and it's, he, he gets a lot out of it. Um, or after Saber buys the company and Michael pops in on David Wallace and he's just this shell of his former self. He's a goofy dad yeah. who like is suddenly so much more attached to Michael to the point where Michael's uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, Andy Buckley, I think 
I, I looked him up on LinkedIn and he only <laughs> only recently, as of like two years ago, actually left his finance jobs and because he did get a role in a new Greg Daniels thing. Greg Daniels wanted to work with him again uh, in the series. I think it's Upload. But um, like, yeah, what a, what a delightful character. And because that's the, that is the thing after season four, you know, you, people throw around the term flanderizing a lot in terms of like making characters too extreme um, because Andy Buckley only ever showed up a couple times a season. You didn't have to do that. Like, I have a really hard time with what they did with Kevin because, A, I actually thought Kevin was funnier when he was just the slow doll guy. Um, mm-hmm. He was only a little stupid. Like, I mean... I think that that is the one thing about Goodbye Toby, if that's going to be your last episode. As, as discussed in my episode with Mike Stevens, like all comedy is inherently harmful and there will always be some degree of offensiveness about, about comedy because comedy is kind of about projection of pain and it, you can't have comedy without getting pain out of someone. But I have a real, like, I mean, there are a lot of things where I draw the line. You know, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tolerate something that has, say, slurs or whatever, but making fun of the developmentally disabled is kind of where I put a bit of a foot down. Like I, for years have uh, taught dance to kids with uh, kids and young adults with developmental disabilities. And I just think it's cheap humor. It is not funny. And then after that, like, cause to be honest, yeah, Kevin was a bit slow and a bit dull, but after that, everything he did had to be that of something that you could confuse with a quote unquote special person. Uh, okay. You know, like the way, the cookie monster thing and the thing that I like about the cookies. And it just, the, the setups were really obvious. The, and it's like, yeah. you're telling me that this guy now doesn't know the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what's interesting too with Kevin is he kind of was an interesting character in the beginning. Like he was this kind of like slow, and we all know a slow talker, right? Like, yeah. But he, he had, you know, he had a fiance who had a daughter. So that's a relationship yeah. he's trying to navigate. And he, he played in a band. a, yeah, and he has a very relatable health scare that yep. brings him a lot of stress, and he's yeah. trying to manage that. There's there's so much nuance to his character in addition to him being this kind of having this kind of funny personality trait of being like kind of slow and like you know not a fast talker. But then they just they take it to the extreme, mm-hmm. yeah, and they lose out on all the nuance. And it's kind of like the character Joey Tribbiani from Friends, yes. Who, in the beginning, in the earlier seasons, he's kind of an airhead. Like it's he's a himbo, yeah. Character, but it's it's funny. Like it's kind of cute. We all have that one friend who's just like kind of an airhead sometimes. But by the end of the show, he's so dumb you can't even really root for him. Anymore. Yeah, they just, it just becomes this cheap joke that they go to over and over instead of giving him a real yeah. story. And like obviously, I don't think like Joey had to end up with someone romantically, but they don't like give him any identity beyond being dumb. And with Kevin, it's kind of the same thing. It's like well. He, he had a relationship with someone who we assume was right for him in the mm. beginning and who clearly trusted him to take her child with him to the office one day. Yeah. Like this clearly was someone who had enough value to bring to a relationship that he was like, he, this woman was considering him as a possible stepfather. You know, like there's a lot of like nuance there that toward the end, it's like he just is this kind of nothing but of the joke character. And it's like he could have been a lot more than that you know what yeah I mean? and even uh in i think it was the sixth season uh when uh they do the blood donation clinic and uh he meets he meets that woman lynn and they you know there's an episode later about him asking her out and stuff and yeah. then it comes to nothing and yeah. and it's like that that is a character i agree it would have been nice to see uh to see him succeed 
Um, even like with uh, the plot with the senator how he's you know kind of the moral center at the end and he stands up to the to the senator and says like what you're doing is wrong good for him i guess but also it's weird because kevin wasn't a character in the beginning with a big moral center and i feel like that's again that's the thing you do with your gentle giant character right is you make them really stupid but they have a big heart and it's like i i guess good for him because he's not a bad person but also that's not who this character was so it's not. Yeah, no. they try to turn them all into Fezzik from Princess Bride. It's like, <laughs> not everybody can be Andre the Giant. They just can't. It's not no. a thing that can happen. No, baby. Oh, um, so I, I love that we agree that season four is the peak. What I will say is my favorite episode, and it comes before that, um, is, and this is, I don't think a lot of people list this as their favorite episode, but the second season Christmas episode, um, it's one of the first I saw because it's very shortly after Take Your Daughter to Work Day. Um, because I think that perfectly encapsulates what an episode of The Office is about. You've got Michael needing to be the center of attention, derailing things, uh, and kind of um, taking it to a point where he pisses everyone off and everyone's just a little bit too pissed at him. Then he redeems himself, and everyone ends up having a lot of fun, and it contains all the observations of what an office Christmas party is honestly like. And I just think that's... um, that to me perfectly encapsulates what an what an episode of The Office is. Um, you know, do you, you don't have Ed Helms or Ellie Kemper yet, but you've got great Jim and Pam moments. You've got, um, you know, you've got some Craig Robinson in there because he really didn't get a lot of play in the first couple seasons. Uh, so yeah, I think that to me is like the exemplary Office episode. But I would say the peak of the op- of The Office in terms of quality was Goodbye Toby season four finale. I agree. And and I, I agree partially because, of course, I have this like strong, vivid memory of like experiencing that show mm-hmm. in real time at that season of my life when it actually was live. But I think that is the time when I was the most invested in the show. And again, like I said, when I was younger and couldn't really relate to office culture, the thing that was most appealing to me about that show was the romance, because like that's just the era of life that I was in. And I do think that after that, they there were some new characters that really did add to the show like ed helms obviously hit or miss but like overall andy was like a really funny character i love the crazy clothes like Mm -hmm. he had some funny things i think ellie kemper was a really good addition to the show yeah funny um she she had like just enough pamness to her that she could kind of fill that role while also being her oh and i loved the kind of it wasn't too much of a thing but they did have a plot where like pam was kind of jealous of uh of Aaron and and even there someone observed in like just a comment section somewhere that Aaron actually is a bit of a better receptionist than Pam like she's so she much is, more yeah. friendly she you know the way she checks with Michael before putting the candy out and like Pam is so obviously burned by it and they don't have to take it anywhere like I kind of like that there were a few things that they didn't take anywhere because like that's just again observational office shit but yeah, I yeah. love that that Pam was yeah, kind of yeah. jealous of Aaron it's so fun. And then I love how she like kind of becomes friends with Kelly because Kelly is like sort of this like off in the annex, like doing her own thing. But yeah. The fact that the two of them get to have this like fun relationship. Like there are some characters that like I really love that they came in and I think they did add yeah. something new and different. But I think after a while, because there weren't a lot of new characters for a long time, I think once they started adding all these new characters, I personally just found it harder to get invested. I'm like, I don't have like you didn't really have time to get to know all these yeah. new characters before you were expected to start rooting for them. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they just weren't set up. Like Aaron was 
the Kate Maroon character was kind of set up as a placeholder, but she eventually got to a point where you could root for her. Mm-hmm. But then there are other characters where I'm like, well, I don't, you know, like the whole Joe thing. I never really got the Joe Bennett yeah. thing. Like, I just had a harder time when they were taking it more and more away from the characters that I like initially signed up to be interested in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, and that's, I noticed yeah. that kind of with myself a lot in shows is like once they bring in too many different people, I'm like, this isn't the cast I kind of signed up for. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think they really had brought in just enough new characters to like keep it interesting. Mm-hmm. There was like the Jim and Pam thing. They had kind of like peaked on like how long they managed to keep that interesting. And then and the other thing with Jim and Pam is like because those characters, to me, Jim and Pam are kind of like Bella Swan. They're kind of created as these like really generic kind of placeholder, normal people who like anyone For you to project in, on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, put yourself in a situation where like, the funny guy at the office is into me and like, the cute girl at the office is into me, like how special that I could have this like once in a lifetime romance come out of this. But because the only thing about those characters that was really interesting, long term was Mm -hmm. their relationship. Yeah, once they got together, the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner because then you couldn't really do a whole lot else with them. The only way to make them interesting was to like, add new conflicts to their relationship and and what's funny about that too and actually i have a canada versus the united states question for you yay (laughs) john krasinski's hair in the first couple of seasons what did you guys call that hairdo so the term hockey hair wasn't that much of a thing but i would say it was associated with hockey hair uh, with hockey but we called that we called that wings because it flipped out like wings yeah Interesting, because yeah. for us, it was very hockey here. And granted, I'm yeah. from Minnesota, which is a very hockey culture state. You're so from really... you're from the home of my favorite hockey player, Justin Hall, by the way. So, yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of interesting, like, underrated athletes that come out of Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Um, but, like, I remember the hockey hair thing when I was a teenager and, like, all the boys I had crushes on <laughs> hockey hair, I thought it was cute. Yeah. You know? Like, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I had a crush on this guy named Eric, who I hope he listens to this and finds out that I was like madly in love with him. We were on the drum line <laughs> together. Very exciting. Um, I remember he had hockey hair and when mm-hmm. he cut his hair, all my friends were like, oh my gosh, he's not as cute anymore. And I yeah. was like, oh my God, he's even cuter now. It was like a whole thing. But I remember being a high schooler who was into high school haircuts. I thought the hockey hair was cute. Whereas now when I look at it as an adult, I was like, well, and oh, Jim's, Jim's supposed man. to be in his mid twenties at the start of the yeah. show. It's like, comb your fucking hair. You know? Yeah, I was yeah. like, dude, come on. And now, like, I remember, and I don't know if straight men or, like, people who are attracted to women are as into Pam as, like, my friends and I were into Jim. But we were yeah. all, like, you know, just looking for the gym to my Pam. And, like, he was so cute and so funny. And because when you're a teenager, like, not caring is inherently cool. That, yes. like, Jim is cool because he just, like, doesn't care. Whereas I look at him now as an adult a bit of a bully he really is and additionally like i know guys who base a lot of their personality off of like my job is stupid everyone around me's stupid i'm the victim of circumstance like i just complain all the time after a couple years you're like then quit then then quit yeah exactly and it's like why if he was so great why did he just stay in this job he clearly yeah like why didn't he just like go get another job and at one point pam even says to him 
you should go for this other job. Yeah. And he like gets mad that she would even suggest it. Yeah. And it's so interesting. He's such that- a Mary Sue. He's because yeah. everyone's supposed to love him. Like he always has the best sales in the company. Like there's actually. Oh, and he gets he managed to get manages to get Jenna Fisher and Amy Adams interested in him, which I totally yeah. forgot that Amy Adams had an arc on The Office. But uh, Amy Adams, like, uh, what a I love her. She's so a princess. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. What did we do to deserve her? It's like her and Judy Greer. <laughs> I'm like, what did we do to deserve her? That's a person I'm surprised never had a, a bit role on The Office was Judy Greer because she was made she for was that so shit. Good. But yeah, with Jim, it's like the other thing that's interesting to me is. Like I said, I wish Pam would have gotten a more interesting career arc where she could have like actually followed the graphic design instead of kind of following it and then just quitting because she failed one class. Like that to me, I didn't love. But another part of me is like Pam herself was not all that interesting. It was weird to me that Jim would stay in this job that he hated where he was clearly miserable. Why? Because he's in love with the receptionist who's engaged to someone Mm -hmm. else. Like it just like the whole thing to me looking back now as an adult it's like, how were the two of you so appealing to each other yeah. that you would stay in this place where you're clearly miserable? And like you said, having comedic banter with someone is not grounds yeah. for a successful relationship. Yeah. Like, I have tons of people that I work with who have like really quick senses of humor that we like have the same sense of humor. I'm not going to like go be in a relationship with any of them. It's just not grounds for anything. You know, and with yeah. you being a fan of community, uh, and I, I post this GIF a lot when talking about hockey lines, but like it's called chemistry. I have it with everyone. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's hilarious that in season eight, again, they kind of hang a lampshade on this. Jim and Pam just have another kid and no one cares about it. And it's like they're saying yeah. like no one cares about this couple anymore. Also, with your talk about introducing new characters, I think it's funny that we've been talking for 90 minutes and we haven't even mentioned Catherine Tate and the character of Nellie because like man what a hateful character like no one liked her season eight was such a miserable thing and i really do blame the fact that not only is this character introduced she was kooky from the start like too kooky to be relatable and just we were supposed to like her and we were supposed to root for her and and you know she's the whole reason ed helms's character became a bad person again and so like a lot of people hold things also like i'm sorry but for being a company in trouble, Dunder Mifflin has a full-time receptionist. Um, it has, I, I've worked for companies way bigger than Dunder Mifflin. And this is my first time in 10 years working for a company that actually has a dedicated HR person who's not just a controller. So it's got, it's got an HR person who's not just a controller. It's got a, an, off, um, an office administrator because Pam makes herself that job. It has yeah, a general like manager. made up job yeah. like the whole storyline is that her job is made up yeah. and she's still there yeah you have your your regional manager in michael you have now nelly the head of special projects you have like several support administrative staff through creed and Meredith. i'm just like i can think of actually a lot of fat that could be trimmed with this company holy sure. shit sure. yeah, what's so yeah. funny is like none of them there's not like a marketing person no like, not at all how hilarious would it have been to have like a marketing team who like thinks they're yeah. cool when they're selling paper because admittedly like my bosses and my whole dynamic is like we have like the exact same sense of humor mm-hmm. we um you know we are surrounded by like engineers and chemists who are like like wonderful people but like they're very serious and so yeah. we'll like make jokes and stuff in presentations that like we're the only ones who think it's funny so honestly like we would be like a really hilarious basis for the kooky marketing team yeah. at 
a paper company because like we work in the tire industry you know how unsexy tires are and yet we're coming into our presentations we've got like memes and anti-jokes and everyone's like oh my yeah. god you're like i can't even like the fact that they missed out on having like any marketing, marketing humor person. yeah yeah um oh, yeah i mean you could argue that that's something that would be handled at corporate except that these are regional sales and you know as you and i both know yeah you have national marketing but you actually need regional marketing so yeah oh god <laughs> so i i have to ask um in kind of the final evaluation of it since we stand in the same place in terms of where the peak was if you were recommending The Office to someone who's never watched it, would you kind of recommend like remote roulette of, you know, just watch any episode and it'll probably be good? Um, I don't know if I would because I think there are, I think your odds of hitting on a good episode are quite high, mm-hmm. but I think there are also a few episodes that if those were the only ones you saw, you wouldn't keep going you know what i mean so i i think like if you did the roulette your odds would be high but i also don't know if the if loss the is devastating is, yeah exactly like if, if the goal is to get them to keep watching i don't know if that would be my strategy yeah because i also think that just starting people out on episode one is not the best strategy but i don't know yeah. if i put them straight to season two either because i think there's a couple of really funny episodes in season one mm-hmm. that are done really well. Like I think the the health insurance episode, oh, especially the yeah. part where they're so well observed. all their made up illnesses. Yeah. So funny. So funny. And like mm-hmm. so specific to the workplace environment that like, I think that's a really good episode. So mm-hmm. I think that like, there are a lot of good episodes that I think would compel a person to keep watching, but there's a handful in there that I think would be so that would just turn someone yeah. off really fast if they didn't have that kind of inherent fondness for the characters already, yeah. that I don't know if I would risk it with the roulette. Yeah. What do you think, though? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So I would say you can do a roulette between seasons one and three, because even season four has some real stinkers, as much as I like it. Um, you can do a roulette there. I would actually recommend a chronological watch through season or of seasons one through three, so that you get to know and like these characters, and then just... Do, do do as you please, you know? Um, I would fair, also fair. actually recommend, as much as the season two like premiere is fine and stuff, I would say start where I started at Take Your Daughter to Work Day because it's exactly like it's your well-observed office humor and you get to know all the characters and their situations pretty damn quickly. And also, you, that's your best introduction to Stanley Hudson ever. With that, oh Boy, have you lost your mind because I'll help you find it. I'll help you find <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, so great. Oh yeah. I think you're right though that the the really strong episodes are the ones where you get to see a little bit of all the characters. Like it is an ensemble show, yeah. It really is, and I think I think like one personally, I think one of the funniest characters in the whole show is Creed. He is oh yeah, so out of left field, and so much of what he says and does makes no sense, yeah. whatsoever, and he has no story arc at all and he is a masterpiece like i think one of the funniest episode moments with creed is when they're trying to get michael to buy a new office chair and he's trying to get pam's chair and he says when pam gets michael's <laughs> old chair i get pam's old chair and then i'll have two chairs only one more to go <laughs> the number of misdirects that you're thinking oh he must yeah. have like a really shitty chair yeah so he's getting pam's chair and then it's like no oh no he wants two chairs for some yeah. reason Wait a second, his goal is to have three chairs? Like, nothing about it makes sense. And it's so much funnier. And then the whole thing where he can't even remember his job title, he's like, Quabity. Quabity, Quabity Ashley. 
pulls a word out of his ass. Yeah. Like, there's no consequences ever for the fact that he doesn't know yeah. what his job is. He Like, he is so funny. And so any show where you get, or any episode where you get to see the weirdness of Creed, mm-hmm. Angela does something with her cats, Stanley says something funny or does some kind of deadpan moment. Like, when you yeah. really get that full ensemble, I think yeah. is really when that show is, like, at its peak, is when you get to see all those actors really bringing it. Because there's really not a snoozer in the whole bunch. No. And it's just, like, when you get them all, I think, is when that show is really at its peak. My favorite line from Creed, and possibly of the whole show, is just the, oh, which one is Pam? Um, but then I also, uh, which, you know, uh, about me, like I'm, um, I, I play chess. I'm, I'm not like super advanced, uh, but I would consider myself a pretty intermediate player. And I love the detail that Creed is actually a very good chess player. Kind of like how yeah. Michael is like unexpectedly a really good ice skater. It's like an, an, like an NHL ice skater. So funny. At the time of filming The Office, Steve Carell was playing in a men's league. And um, one of my favorite sites is Elite Prospects, which is it basically has every stat of every hockey player who's played in like a registered, you know, junior or higher league. Um, you'll find a lot of surprising people. Paris Hilton is on that because she played high school what? hockey. She played high school hockey. Um, Avril Lavigne is on it. And indeed, Steve Carell. Amazing. Yeah. So you it. can find Steve Carell's uh, hockey stats. Um, it kind of reminds me of yeah. how Harks and Rec wrote the um, Duke Silver alter ego for mm-hmm. Ron Swanson's character not knowing that he actually does play the saxophone oh yeah he's like, good they, like they didn't know that he could play the saxophone when they wrote <laughs> this character this like character arc for him and it turns out he's like actually a very accomplished sax player yeah like, i just like love that like little tidbit and i didn't know yeah. that about steve carell that he the reason they built that in is because he actually was like a really good idea yeah which no that, wonder he's know? in such good shape you know he's and yeah. which also means if he plays hockey that he has like a really nice caboose so, <laughs> so we love, a, we love a nice booty moment for, for Michael Scott. <laughs> Since there is that moment where he's wearing, where like his jeans, yes. fighting over should it be? They, do they use get a copier or new chairs with the money? He's like, there's that ass. God, I love it. Little did we know it was a hockey butt. So Maggie, before we say goodbye, uh, I'd love for you to plug your stuff. Uh, tell us where we can reach you on social, read your stuff. Uh, you know what we can expect from you. Fantastic. So yeah, um, I am most active, probably on Twitter, actually, which is where our internet friendship was born. You can find me at Maggie B. Olson, uh, B as in boy and Olson spelled O-L-S-O-N, not yes. like Mary-Kate and Ashley. Um, I'm also on Twitter. If you like pictures of food or crafts, I'm just Maggie Olson there. There's no B, no space, no hyphen, no period, anything. Um, again, O-L-S-O-N, not mm-hmm. like Mary-Kate and Ashley. Um, that also is a problem with my professional email that people will put E in, and I'm like, yeah. it's, not, it's not coming to me. But um, yeah, I, I write for The Financial Diet. I also am a freelance writer and editor. I specialize mostly in like technology writing, and I, I'm a really good translator. If you have like a complex idea in your head and you have a hard time getting it on paper, I can connect those dots for you. So hit me up if you're looking for some help with that. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say in terms of what to expect. We're just pushing through this last uh, chunk of chunk of pandemic times now. <laughs> so hot girl summer is on its way. 
Not quite hot, hot girl summer for us in unvaccinated Canada, but you know what? Um, I, I'm fully willing to just get a masked tan line again this year, so I'm down. So as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Breganism. That's like veganism with a B-R-E-E. -E. Our theme music is Homo Logo by Jack Dump. You can find and support them on Bandcamp at bandcamp.com slash jackdump. You know how to spell Jack and Dump. Our show logo is made by Jared Daly, the guy I married. New episodes are due out every two weeks on Thursdays. You do not want to miss them. If you want to check out our back catalog, we've got episodes on Malcolm in the Middle, King of the Hill, So You Think You Dance. We've got episodes coming up on Scream, Saw, The Mighty Ducks, Canadian Indie Music, and more. So take it easy and remember, if you're past your peak, rolling downhill is very fun. That little girl is a child. I don't want to see you sniffing around her anymore this afternoon. Do you understand? Yes, Boy, have you lost your mind, because no, no, no. I'll help you. Find no, it. No. What you're looking for? Ain't nobody going to help you out there. Jesus can come through that door, and he's not going to help you if you don't stop sniffing after my child. Okay. Stanley yelled at me today. That was one of the most frightening experiences of my life. <laughs>